Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I shoot the breeze with fascinating dining companions over top class food. This is another one of the episodes that was recorded in the heady days before we relied on takeaways and home cooking for sustenance. My guest is a journalist, presenter of Screen Wipe and a writer with a pronounced taste for the dystopian through his Netflix series Black Mirror. It is, of course, Charlie Brooker. So I burst into a run, go through this door, expecting to find the toilet. Instead, there's a whole other floor. <laughs> and I sort of ran in and went, everywhere. What, in the restaurant? Yes. Okay. And just heard nothing but... Charlie and I ate at the wonderful Indian restaurant Chutney Mary, which first opened in London's Chelsea in 1990, but moved in 2015 to St James's. It's a plush joint serving seriously good Indian food from across the country's many regions. In short, I spoiled Charlie rotten. Let's get into it. I'm very well. I say, have we met before? I feel I have met you before. Well, but maybe I'm wrong. You're absolutely wrong. We walked past each other, right? At like the British Press Awards when a couple of years ago. A couple we... of years ago? Well, when was it? When we? Oh, right, it must have been loads of years ago because you haven't written for us. No. When I, I say us, I mean the Guardian. For a... I think that will have been about fourteen years ago. Do you think? My guess. Have a seat. We have a microphone, and oh, we, thanks. you know, we always like those. And uh, this is Lenny who will be serving us today. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. So if you have a look, the I menu look. here. I'm starving. This is good. I'm there's a whole bunch of small plates, and then we've got, and some of them are involved. Seafood, so they put those to, to the side. I'll eat. Well, shall almost I, everything on here. I would. Shall imagine. I make some suggestions? Yes, please. Um, so if we do a bunch of small plates, mm-hmm. how many small plates do you recommend? Normally we recommend as a starter and a main course for each. Yeah. So you can have two to three starters, which is the small plates. Between two? or Between two. All right. And then we'll do a couple of big dishes. So um, the uh, how about the chilli glazed tandoori paneer? That sounds nice. You're right with cheese. I, yeah? I, I love cheese. Um, are you happy with the lamb? I will de- I'll definitely eat lamb. Oh, yep. and you're, 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 you're leading me. Were you pointing at the, the samosas? The, 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 even the brain cutlets. Which yeah, where are you on offal? I'll try some brain. Right. I'll eat some brain. Right, so I'll have the brain cutlet, Parsi style. Oh, God, look at that. That sounds nice. What's that? No, I was just looking ahead at the smoked cashmere chili chicken tea. Yeah. Like everything, mind you. Well, well, then we should have one of those. Yeah. Uh, was that in the, where were you looking? Was that under grill? That was under grill. Yeah, smoked cashmere chili. Right. Well, let's have one of those. And the fish, wanted the boneless with the seafood. The boneless is nice, yeah. Sorry, it's beautifully marinated cooked in tandoor. Okay. Brilliant. How about the uh, the lamb curry with cashmere chili? That sounds nice to me. Ooh, we see now pilau rice with black rice. That's with super antioxidants. I'll try that. I like the sound of spicy, crispy cauliflower, but does that make me more That sounds nice yeah, to me. That sounds fine by me. Cauliflower. And how about the twice fried crispy potatoes? Well, that sounds very nice Basically as well. Chips. Yeah. So Rajasthani's tail from... Okay. God, this all sounds incredibly nice. Thank you. Yeah, so I didn't eat anything spicy at all for years. I would avoid it like the plague. I didn't even eat a curry until I was probably about 20, a student, I think. Oh, really? And I had a korma, and it was like, oh, this is hot. Oh, a korma? Well, because I'd never eaten anything spicy in my life. Korma was like, oh, my God, it's oh, terribly I mean, hot. We're allowed to acknowledge that kormas are sort of seen as the mild one. Yes. And then working in comedy writers' rooms, behind the scenes on panel shows, and you'd sit in a room full of comedy people, and at lunch, 
people would order food and people you're completely infantilized in those rooms so there's people run around and, and, and bring you your lunch you, you're just meant to sit there and be the brain that does funny you're meant to sit there yes in a group of people basically saying the first two hours are always people saying unbroadcastable things and then eventually you, you someone notices the clock on the wall and you realize you've got to say some broadcastable things and write them down and and nando's became a thing in the UK. <laughs> and uh, people started ordering in Nando's. And I was like, I don't know. So it's a whole of British panel show comedy. Runs on Nando's. Runs on Nando's. That was the gateway drug. Was was uh, writer's rooms, I think, run on Nando's. Even the mild one is quite spicy oh, if yeah, you're not used to spice. And, and I gradually, and I realised I was getting to enjoy it. I was starting to like it on some masochistic level. So the endorphin to... rush that you get from chili, which is, is yeah. what it is. It, it, a full-on chili burn will give you an endorphin. Yeah, and yes. you can't... It's sort of like, I guess, seeking out anything like that. You can't... Then you're disappointed after that point. If you order something that claims to be spicy and it isn't, you're kind of let down. I mean, I sort of, at home, I will pretty much eat anything if I douse it in sriracha. Who cooks? Connie cooks most of the time, I would say, actually. No. I just had to throw this in your wife, Connie Hart, yes. former Blue Peter presenter. We just yes. have to put that in brackets. It's, it always happens with your wife. Exactly. She is the polar opposite of me in many ways. Into, and I'm, I, I take against things in the fridge if I think they're approaching their use-by date. I'm regularly summoned to the kitchen to look at food items and say, it's fine. To my other half. She got and brought um, chicken yesterday Mm -hmm. and there were three uh, chicken uh, escallops Mm -hmm. and one was slightly a different colour. And uh, I would see immediately I would take against that. Would you? Yeah, I would be immediately suspicious of it. And if I ate it, I would be in a state of some turmoil afterwards expecting expecting that moment because you are phobic about vomiting I've got a phobia about vomiting which meant I didn't get drunk till I was 25 I didn't uh, I, it took me a lot to even eat an oyster the first time I ever I, I ate an oyster and, and then I thought it's not really you don't need it. to do that before the food arrives I have to ask mm. you when was the last time you vomited and I have to say that's a first for me in, in interview questions <laughs> <laughs> I uh, honestly can't remember I had the norovirus and didn't vomit well, that's remarkable. What out of pure very, will? Yes, and there's a, I've read a theory about people with a metaphobia. One theory is that they actually metaphobia—that's sort of a fear of vomiting. In metaphobia, yeah, so yeah. metaphobics. Were, metaphobia. We yeah, should okay. be a society. Should be a union. Um, oh, that's a, a night out, isn't it? <laughs> not a very interesting so. one. There's a theory that we have extremely strong constitutions, actually, and so therefore, when you do vomit. It's sort of more traumatic and more exceptional. I've probably vomited about nine times in my life, something like that. I've only vomited through being drunk once. And what was you drunk that time? It was in Chinatown, and my boss at the time took all of us out. In fact, I think it was the first time... It was the first time I actually got drunk, I think. What I remember is that they were basically bringing alcohol, I think, illegally in a teapot... Or something like that. So, uh, so we, very nineteen twenty-seven <laughs> New York. And I was drinking and drinking and drinking, and then food was going around. And we were eating the duck uh, spliffs, the duck spliffs. I always call, think duck of spliffs. them as. And then I was really full, and the room started spinning. I thought, oh, what's going on? Oh, I don't feel great. And then they said, now here's the main course, and they brought out all this stuff, and I thought, oh god. And I realised with a sense of horror 
that the that, thing you feared most in the world was, was about to happen. happen. And But weirdly also, it was accompanied by a, a sense of drunken calm. If I mean, it was like there was a stoicism that washed over me at the same time. Because I was drunk, I was, wasn't just in raw pa- animal panic, which I would have been normally. And I remember having that I had the presence of mind to, whilst physically kind of keeping the tide in, sort of go, go, saying to a waiter, is there a toilet here? And he pointed up a flight of stairs, and I went, thank you very much, and got up from the table and walked as calmly as I could up the stairs. As I'm halfway up the stairs, I feel it starting to come up, so I burst into a run, go through this door, expecting to find the toilet. Instead, there's a whole other floor <laughs> to the restaurant, and I sort of ran in and went, everywhere. What, in the restaurant? Yes. Okay. And just heard nothing but... Um, but the chopstick equivalent of that. Do you mean um, there are other people at tables in there? Oh, my God, it was packed. <laughs> it was packed. I, yeah, it was absolutely packed. It was a bigger floor upstairs than it was downstairs. You push through the door, there's a whole bunch of people, they look at you, yeah. and your response is to vomit copiously. Well, I think, actually, I may have been vomiting as I came through the door. I think the vomit arrived before I did. <laughs> Into the, the into this and um and then there was a waiter angrily like pointing at a because there was more to come it was like the first you know the first uh, movement <laughs> I delivered and then there was more to come there was this waiter like furiously pointing at the at the loo and I sort of ran in there still being remember I went in and was sick again and there was a bloke at the urinal who just turned and sort of like pretty much ran have there been any scenes of vomiting in any episodes of Black Mirror yeah. In the very first one, after the Prime Minister... Wow, this is a terrible topic of conversation. But after the Prime Minister... Uh, performs Congress with a pig. The pig. He is, you see him afterwards. Right. In the... Hoiking his guts. And at that note, no, the uh, starters were oh, arrived. Right. So that's marvellous. Weirdly, I don't mind. I, I, like, I liked the Mr Creosote scene, the Terry Jones Mr Creosote scene in Meaning of Life, for instance, because that's so ridiculous. You can't kind of find it. Do you want to tell us what we've got here? Exactly. Sorry to interrupt. That's Let me right. tell you what you have on the table. That's a tamarind glazed panini tikka. Mm-hmm. It's a homemade cottage cheese. Then you have the baked vegetarian samosa with some chili raita. Mm-hmm. Your lamb seek kebab has some mint chutney and tomato chutney. Yeah. And here we have the brain cutlet mm-hmm. with some tomato chutney on the side. Brilliant. Enjoy status. This almond looks great. Can I go all the way back? Will you describe... Mm-hmm. We're talking neuroses around food, neuroses around oysters. Mm-hmm. Um, was that good? Mm. As a kid, were you a neurotic kid? Were you somebody walking into school with, please excuse Charlton from uh, games Um, because he's he's got a bad leg? Well, games, that's nice as well. That's nicely spicy. The brain cutlet. That's nicely spicy as well. Uh, Yes, I was neurotic. I think that's partly being a child of the 80s, so I expected to die in a nuclear holocaust at... Like that at any moment, and I and genuinely one of the things I was worried about was that radiation sickness would make you sick. But um, uh, I so I had, was, you, had you witnessed? Uh, had you seen one of those threads. particular threads? Like, yeah, and remind me what threads was. I mean, threads was well. Now I can't remember which I saw first. There was the BBC did a show called Q, uh, QED, which was a popular science show. There was an episode of that called A Guide to Armageddon, where they showed you. Uh, it was Ludovic Kennedy was doing the voiceover, a very sober voiceover, as he just showed you the effects of one nuclear bomb detonating over uh, St Paul's, what, it, what, what effect it would have on the whole of London. It was utterly horrifying. It was terrifying. Um, How old were you? I must have been about 
12, I think, 12, 13. And you, but you internalised that idea. You, di- you didn't look at it as something just on the telly. You immediately extrapolated that into the real world. I assumed it would happen because it seemed likely to happen. My, both my grandparents on my um, mother's side, they ran Quaker meeting houses and they were very active in CND and things like that. And I remember at a formative age finding a copy of Sanity, which was the CND anti-nuclear campaign magazine. And I must have been quite, I must have been nine or something like that. I found this thing and I read it and it had a description of stuff that happened at like Hiroshima. That was looming constantly was the thought that at any moment everything could be wiped out. And I remember thinking it's very odd. How can anyone in the world focus on worrying about what shoes they're going to wear? When- Did you express this to, to, to your folks, to your parents? Your, your dad was a social worker, yeah. so, you know, presumably quite good. It would express itself in, I think, a leaning towards... I enjoyed sort of gallows humour very early on, and I think that's... So you'd see... I liked anything that was sort of sick humour from a very early age. I remember being allowed to watch repeats of Monty Python. They did one which was like about a... It was a par- I now understand it was a parody of a Sam Peckinpah film. They're all playing tennis and like... Oh, yeah, and their limbs just keep flying off and there's Kensington Gore flying everywhere. Blood flying everywhere... I found it, that sort of thing I found hilarious. And I think that's probably to do with the anxiety about death lurking around. Well, when, um, uh, when my late mother was around, she mm. was a news junkie mm. and we'd take us, our then small children round to their house on a mm. Saturday or Sunday. And she would insist when, whenever anything really shitty was happening, turning the TV on, watching the news and commenting on bombs going off and war being fought. And I eventually have to say, do you mind? Do you mind if we right. just... Toe back, and she, and she was slightly baffled. She would always say, "Well, they need to know." I think I would definitely be, have been better off not watching the news until I was sixteen. Were you doodling <laughs> um, beheadings? Uh, not beheadings. Oh, well, no, actually, there were some beheadings. Yeah, of course, there were. My first job was as a cartoonist for a comic called Oink, which was kind of like a kids' version of Viz. Well, one of the editors was Tony Husband, who does lots of stuff for Private Eye and stuff like that. And then um, there were the other contributors were like Frank Sidebottom was one, Mark Riley, who became half of Mark and Lard. Yeah. No. And so it was an art. It was made in Manchester. I never met any of them, but I'd sent some comic strips into their letters page, and they wrote back and said, "Will you come up for a com- with a comic strip for us?" And I was like fifteen. So this was quite... Did you write back and say, I'm 15? No, because I thought that might scupper my chance. I think it was pretty obvious I was 15 when you saw my the stuff I was doing. What was it? Because the comic was a parody of things like Buster and Wizard and Chips. My characters were Freddy Flop, He Falls to Pieces, who was a boy with leprosy whose limbs would fall off <laughs> at inopportune moments. The Adventures of Death, who's the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper and what he was up to this week. And the punchline was always that he would chop someone's head off with a scythe. And there was a, there was a Twilight Zone thing I did called The Swine Light Zone, because this whole thing, it was called Oink, and it was, the premise was it was edited by a pig. So They was, play quite a big part in your career, really, pigs, haven't they? Yeah, inordinately so, considering I don't even eat them anymore. I'm just curious if at any point, are your parents still both with us? Mm-hmm. What are their names? Anne and Derek. So did Anne and Derek at any point have a kind of case conference over Charlton and the way he seemed to be... 
Edging. Damaged. Um, and damaged and whether an intervention was needed. Maybe maybe a little time with the child psychologist. Or did they think, no, he's just got native imagination. This was the 70s and 80s. Well, well your parents basically didn't pay any attention to I don't to you. think, like, I think you'd have to have been literally sticking cat's heads on poles for, the, for there to be so any kind of intervention. <laughs> Forgive me for asking, but was there any of that? No. Oh, no. Oh, well, that I did used to kill ants. <laughs> I did used to kill ants. I would talk. Gateway. Yeah. You but, start with the ants, and before you know it, you're basically Hannibal Lecter. Anything bigger than an ant, I don't think I'd have managed. So, uh, no interventions. Your parents were kind of quite cool with it, and then you start writing for Oink. Yeah. Um, how much were you paid? My memory is that at the time, if you wrote the script and did the drawing, my memory is it was £80 a page, which at the time bad. was huge for oh, me. We would have been talking mid-80s? Mid-80, yeah, about 85, 80, about 86, 87. That we, was... Were you doing that once a month? No, it was weekly. Were you at, <laughs> at all at that point shocked that you were able to make money out of the inside of your warped mind? Ye- yes. I knew I wanted to sort of be a writer or something along those lines because the comic folded eventually and... It meant, I think, I was sort of unemployable in the real world. And so I just got a job in Music and Video Exchange, which is like the place in Notting Hill Gate. You did go from, you did your A-levels and you went to university? It was a polytechnic and then it became a university. So it always feels like a cheat saying university. Um, Do you you mean? It was a poly, but then it was a uni. Is it right that you didn't actually finish? That's correct. Because they turned down your dissertation on video games. That's correct too. What was the thesis in the dissertation? Well, my memory of it, it it was bad. This is, I was mainly writing about Sonic the Hedgehog and Road Rash. Um, How many words did you get out of that, mate? What, 25,000? Muzzle tough, as I people say. (laughs) It must be the case that your work is now studied on media studies courses. I believe it is in some places. Yeah, mm. it has to be. Yeah. Um, do, does that <laughs> give you any weird glow of satisfaction? I think they asked me to come and give a talk or something like that. But, I mean, to be fair, it wasn't like they did me wrong. I just didn't even bloody check with them that I was allowed to write the dissertation I was writing. Um, I just sort of did. I was like quite content to coast along. When, when you look at, you know, the, the traditional biog for you, it basically describes the lost decade in right. the 20s. Yes. That's how it seems. Yeah, that's how it felt. Um, and breakups from girlfriends and weeping and watching the television tilted on its side so you yes. didn't have to move. Yep, I was lying on my side and I realised it was easier if I just turned, if I turned the television sideways, then I wouldn't have to sit up, which was the one annoyance in my life, apart from my life. Um... <laughs> This all looks nice, doesn't it? This it is really good. Does. This is like a proper feast. Lenny. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. We have the grilled Kashmiri chicken tikka with some mint chutney and a blueberry chutney. The glazed paneer, uh, the sea bass with some mint chutney. Then you have the spicy cauliflower, your black rice. Your Bijapur lamb curry has two pieces on the bone, which is your sabuko. Mm-hmm. And the crispy potatoes and your Rajasthani aloo. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very, you very much. much. Thank you. When we do this, you know, I like to do my research, you know, which I haven't actually touched because I've internalised every single detail about it. But I've listened uh, to two particular podcasts. One was Desert Island Discs, where you turn up as a rather <laughs> sweet kind of hand-wringing soul who feels a bit uncomfortable with the perception of who you might be and how you are. Yeah. And then there is the Richard Herring one, where you're an absolute fucking monster. Yeah. It is 
75 minutes of... You know that stuff you said about the unbroadcastable two hours in the writer's room before you get to anything that you can broadcast? Right. Well, that was the Richard Herring podcast. And we originally did... I said, I could go on and say, which... Charlie which Brooker, do I get today? Which one, is, like, which one is the real you? Well, I guess the Desert Island Discs is, is the probably, one when you're around your in-laws. There you're acutely aware that you're slightly in the psychiatrist's chair, aren't you, on Desert Island Discs. Generally, when I did that, I was in a sort of introspective, just sort of slightly low-energy frame of mind for several weeks. I mean, the Richard Herring podcast, you're on stage with Richard Herring in a theatre where everyone... He's making bum dick jokes every ten seconds. Frankly, I blame him. Uh, I'll just say, it was Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, (laughs) the episode with Charlie Brooker, don't put it on speaker. Oh, that's, right. that's pretty much what I'd say. Okay, that's terrifying. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is George Ezra, and earlier this year, I started a brand new podcast called Phone a Friend with one of my closest friends, Mr. Ollie MN. Ollie. Yeah, don't like the one of bit, but uh, <laughs> every week, George and I have a conversation about our weeks, what's going on in our lives, and the kind of main focus is checking in on each other's mental health. And we share stories, tips, advice, listener emails. And I swear to you, it's fun. I swear on my life. <laughs> it is. Well, we find it fun. We believe you might as well. So please search for Phone a Friend wherever you listen to your podcast. See you soon. Bye. Describe how you dug yourself out of the tw- your 20s. I was doing, I've done a website which had comic strips on it. And the problem with comic strips is they take ages to do. And I wasn't updating it very often. And a friend of mine said, if you just did that regularly, I think it's good. it could be a success. That's quite good what you're doing. I was working as a video games reviewer by now. And then I started doing a parody of the Radio Times, but quite a scabrous one. And in my head, it was in the voice of Viz, basically, that I was doing. And um, it became a sort of culty hit. By now, I was doing a radio thing, a little radio thing on the on Radio One, which was had come about through doing video games reviewing. And the co-presenter on that said, "You'll get fired if the BBC sees you're putting something with BBC branding on it that's full of that sort of language." So I I got somebody to host it anonymously, and that gave it a sort of cachet. And people assumed it was written by a team of people or some anonymous TV insider, and that led to me getting. Um, TV writing gigs and The Guardian got in touch and said would you write a review Ricky was leaving EastEnders something like that and they said will you you write a column about it 
because I'd done things about that on TV Go Home. And that was the sort of the escape hatch, because before I'd been in what I considered a sort of... I was writing video games reviews and I couldn't work out how to get out of that. It wasn't like I didn't like... Because that was a cushy job, as cushy as it could, you could get. An I, um, excuse to sit on the sofa and play them. And basically I was stoned the whole time. And that's the other thing. I think as soon as I stopped smoking dope, I actually got quite productive. Now that I've realised it, that was why when I said, well, I didn't really care about the dissertation. I didn't really like... And I'd go and get in a get a cab home from work rather than... Um, it's because I was stoned the whole time in my 20s and I, so I didn't care about anything. Was there any ambition? I must have been very ambitious because I know that I sent off the comic strips to that magazine but I was also sending... I was sending... I used to write comedy sketches and send them, like, type them up on a typewriter and send them to things like Alas, Smith & Jones. Did and you get any on? No. The interesting thing in this story is your career viewed through the premise of how it actually worked out, if you don't know about what, what else you were doing, mm. is... Video game reviewer gets column in Guardian, gets asked to write TV drama. Ooh, how does that happen? Whereas, in fact, the idea of writing drama was always there. You were doing it when you were a kid. You may not have been massively successful at it, but the the, the I, idea of scripts and drama and narrative was always part of it. I guess. I mean, that's weird, because I, I mean, as in that that was drama, because really, I always wanted to do comedy. And so... I got into drama almost by accident by doing... We did this zombie series in 2008. I was always a fan... I think there's actually a lot of crossover between horror and comedy and Romero zombie films and things like that. And shows like The Twilight Zone, which were often basically satires. So I'd always had a hankering for that sort of material. But I predominantly... It's it's one of my frustrations is that in America, Black Mirror is successful in America... I get very annoyed when I see people taking the piss out of it for thinking it's very, very serious and that the person who writes it must be this very dark, tormented, sort of, like, grumpy... I mean, that's that's right, but I like to think I've got a sense of humour. I'm quite goofy, really. Yeah, well, you did... It, um, I mean, as far as America's concerned, you did once write a Guardian column around the George W. Bush presidential election oh campaign where you Although, basically said... where You named all the people who have assassinated or attempted to assassinate presidents and you become a hate figure for the, for the right in the States. Yes. Wasn't the best move. So what it did do was... It was kind of inoculated me against worrying too much about that, about saying something controversial and then getting into trouble because I got death threats and all sorts. So, And, and I genuinely thought my world had ended. Like when that, it, it had an impact on you. Oh, massively so. I Did the say. Guardian make a fuss? Did you get calls? No, not really, because I never went into the office even. I was always... No, it's a bad idea, don't mm. you? Because the first I knew was I woke up and I had something like... They'd found my work email address, and I had something like a 1,000 emails, and I was like, what's going on? And at the time when you're caught up in it, you can't see what's going on. Afterwards, I realised what had happened was some right-wing bloggers had found it, had promoted it, had basically said, write a letter of complaint to this person and these are the people. Like, So I think The Guardian were a bit flummoxed because it was... Also, it was my TV column. It was one of the first times it had gone online and there you didn't have the context of seeing that it was in this sort of... The G2, the guide section, right. where it was with a little cartoon over the top of it. It looked like... So the, a lot of them sort of mistook it for an op-ed that was calling for an assassination... <laughs> And it's got, so I have some sympathy with the, the fact that people were stumbling across it shorn of context. I did learn how quickly those things actually pass. They do basically. pass reasonably quickly. And that it's a machine that's, that's 
and kicking them up and cycling them. On the level of material, how it's people respond to it. I mean, you've had your issues over the years. There's the Guardian <laughs> column. There was the uh, strip you did for a computer mag where you had children killing zoo animals. Oh, yeah. It was that, a comic strip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, got, yeah. that got pulled off the shelves. <laughs> there was your first episode of Black Mirror, which ends up with the Prime Minister performing Congress with a fine member of the farmyard community. <laughs> Are there moments where you, where you look back and go, no, I shouldn't have. Yes, and I did, and this is one of the reasons I stopped doing the TV column was precisely that, because I recognised that well, two things, I think, happened simultaneously. One, I was making more TV shows myself, and so I started to feel like, hang on a minute, if I've written a drama series, if I slag off someone else's drama series, that's just professional griping. Yeah. It's unfair. Well, why do I have a platform to do that? That was one thing. The other thing was I thought... Was the more that the more TV I made, the more I I came to realise. Oh well, it's not full of people patting themselves on the back and going, "Wasn't this brilliant? Didn't we do?" But it's like it's full of compromises, things you didn't necessarily want to happen. You'd be able to make do. There could be people going through all sorts of problems. Did, and, and I started thinking, I feel like a bully if I'm dissecting somebody on who's appeared on a, a, a reality show and I'm making and I'm complaining that they're an idiot well I know that they've probably had a bad edit they've been led into this trap basically by a show and now here I am I'm I'm up there in the coliseum hurling clods of shit at people who were sort of like down like it suddenly it felt like the sounds the like balance the moment shifted. the moment when you realized you were Darth Vader with your child yeah it was a bit like that I'll talk about Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you seem to make an effortless move through the zombie apocalypse mm-hmm. show you did, and then Black Mirror comes along. Mm-hmm. You open with a zinger. Somebody once said to me it was a bit like the opening of Saving Private Ryan, that, as in it was a bit sort of a, a statement of intent. Yeah. And you do it for Channel 4, mm-hmm. and then you they're close to cancelling it. At which point you they get... Bo- kind of did cancel it in a... Well, they sort of, it was like a soft cancellation, I would say. The thing I'm really... Is you get brought up by Netflix, mm-hmm. famously with this vast... De- well, what sounds to normal people walking the street. Mm-hmm. You're given a £40 million budget. Was it not terrifying, that moment? You know, you get the call or your agent or whoever mm-hmm. negotiated this deal. Mm-hmm. Brilliant news. Netflix are going to give you a production deal. They're giving you X millions of pounds. No, they don't need to see the scripts in advance. And on the one hand, you're thinking, woohoo, Christmas. Mm. And on the other hand, surely it's not a part of you thinking, Christ alive, this is, this is an invitation to fail. I, I always assume we're going to fail at whatever we're doing. So, so it wasn't like a new feeling. Oh, right. Yeah, you don't think it's all going to work out. You think it's going to fail. I assume everything is going to be a disaster. Well, you know it's what it's like. When you're writing anything, I find... There's a voice saying, this is shit, Morgan, stop, stop typing, stop it, what are you doing? So that's constantly there, in a way, and a lot of the job is just going, shut up, shut up, <laughs> and then carrying on going. I am now more attuned to the, used to the fact that, like, when you see the first cut of any episode you've done, you always think, oh, we are screwed, and then you're not. You can, you can sort of, almost anything is... It's fixable, and you, you can't compare those, what you're doing to the finished You have product. to have those two thoughts in your head at the, at the same time. One, one being, when I see this, it will be terrible, but I also know that it can be fixed. Yes. Well, as, but, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll get sleepless nights, and I'll be, like, pacing up and down, going, oh, no, we're in trouble now. What's this happened? Does Connie um, have to talk you down? Yeah. Sometimes I'll show her an episode before we've... I'll show her an early cut, 
it's usually if she says something that's right and unfixable, I'm immediately cross. Like, I, I know! It's like someone, I don't know, criticising your child's face or something. Like, what can you do about it? Fucking leave them alone! Um, so she's used to the angst. So the thing is, certain of the, the, the ideas that you've come up with in Black Mirror have then happened. The one that I really think of, when you extrapolated, I don't know if this is what you're extrapolating from, the idea of you give a five a score out of five to your Uber driver and your Uber driver gives you a score out of five. Oh, yeah. And there was a whole episode about, mm-hmm. you know, picking up your scores and you yes. could only go to certain places if you were a four or above. Yeah. China has pretty much introduced this system, haven't they? Because of the episodes we've done, I get it. It's like I have an early warning system. When anything like that, when when anything like that happens, people immediately tell me. And so China have been doing some sort of reputational citizenship, and and the sinister thing there was something that we allude to in that episode, but we never really go into. The really insidious thing about that is, so if you are friends with someone who has a low score it impacts your score so you have an incentive for to stay away from that defriending the person who isn't loyal to the state yes that's particularly we didn't go there in that episode yeah we should we should have patented that and then the Chinese Chinese. would have owed us a large amount of money wouldn't they Uh, have you also had it pointed out to you that the current winter series of Love Island the villa Mm-hmm. Oh, is, is the where one we, that we, where you shot the Miley Cyrus episode? That was one of the few times when we shoot on um, location. I usually don't go because I'm busy writing the next episode, and that was one of the few times I got to go to South Africa and go and stand in that. So you've been in the Love Island villa. I've been in the Love Island villa. Um, Did you take your top? At one point, I walked into a glass door, and like it was one of those things where. It was quite spectacular. Like, I banged my head really spectacularly hard. And then I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then they're like, well, there's a medic here, you've got to see them. And then by the time the medic arrived, I was thinking, actually, I don't think I am fine. Were you concussed? (laughs) I I think I was mildly concussed. I had to sort of sit down and, like, not move very much for an hour or so. We have the desserts in front of us. Do you do desserts? Oh, my God. I really have no room for any of this but I'm going to force myself to eat something good man but do you know can you guess what is the one thing on this menu I would order the gulab jam no oh okay. no I'm, I'm I, I probably actually there are lots of things I would order but the one thing I'm going to order yeah. out of solidarity for seeing it there is the dark chocolate bomb surprise because when he, whenever I see a dessert menu without something that just says chocolate and doesn't say anything else I get really, really angry. Well, if they haven't, if they haven't got chocolate, then. why are they bothering with a dessert menu if there isn't like an option that just says chocolate? Basically, I mean, why? Do you kind I of don't bring it. To slap me. the menu. I, down I, on the I table make and, a point. It's the only time I and, and, and the slap your head and go and went call over a way and say why. I don't. I don't. Do you make a scene? I, I asked for the dessert menu. I think you'll find it makes me cross. I had a sweet shop attached to my house when I was growing up as a kid. You've taken shop. an I hour know. and 45 minutes to get to that revelation. Yes. So why would It tells us it? everything. You are basically off your tits on sugar for the entirety of your childhood. I was, actually. Earning 80 quid a week. So you're keeping the shop afloat off the profits of the Grim Reaper. No, by then it was shut. By then it was the village store. My grandmother ran it. And we just had free chocolate on tap. And I think it closed when I was about eight. Yeah. Uh, my, my friend here will have the chocolate bomb surprise and I'll have the creme brulee, please. 
Oh, we've got a chocolate bomb. I've got a chocolate bomb. Dark chocolate bomb. Thank you very much. And you'll find some crumb roll over the coconut ice cream. Thank you. You should try some of this as well. When you left terrestrial television... Well, kind of. Leave it. I've never left it. Not slammed the door on it, but yeah. Was it with regret? Uh, I thought that Netflix made a perfect home for an anthology show. Because the thing we'd found, if you're going out week on week... People, your audiences dip because you don't have recurring storylines. So you don't have an ongoing storyline. You don't have recurring. Whereas, characters. if you're part of a library that you can look and take something off the shelf, it's more like a short story collection. You can do it at your leisure. By the way, I have to go and. Oh, check. sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm just. Go ahead. I've got no manners. Look, you immediately, you immediately lent yours forward like that, oh, and no. I'm more. Like, I kind of went like this. With your arm over the top of it, can you? Um, I will in a minute. What are you trying to do? You're trying to fatten me up. What is this? Silence of the Lambs. Um, Bring on the... Actually, no, it's the second one, Hannibal. Remember the end of Hannibal? Yes, I've, I found that very funny because it was so out of order. <laughs> um, Ray Liotta eating his own brains. Uh, if you've read mm. the book, mm-hmm. the brilliant thing that Thomas Harris... He, he, he is a, he's a great cook. <clears throat> and he had worked in extreme detail to work out, with the help of surgeons, how you could remove the top of the cranium while keeping the patient alive perform a frontal lobotomy which would not impair fully, right. and then the detail of how you, you have to drop them into acidulated water before frying the lobes of brain, before feeding them to radiata. Absolutely beautiful. It's the finest moment of cannibalism in literature. We did just eat brains earlier on, you know? I yeah, mean, I know. Just, uh, yeah, but the lamb wasn't standing like... here looking at us going... Did you see that news story the other day, the woman playing the violin while mm. having... Brain surgery. Uh, I mean, there, there are many stories of doing that kind of brain surgery of having to carry on a manual task. The, to, uh, playing the violin, so that they can, so they can, it's so they can see which bit of your brain lights up when you do be, it. No, it's, it's specifically so they're, they're not impairing your fine motor skills. Has a brain surgeon ever had surgery while conducting brain? Like, because that would be if a brain surgeon needed brain surgery, and so they had to conduct brain surgery during the brain <laughs> surgery. <laughs> To see, <laughs> so it's a face. human centipede of surgeons. Um, How was your chocolate? It was very nice, nice, thank you. Very, it was all very nice actually. I have to say, I would have kept eating. I st- only stopped eating everything else out of shame because you'd stopped eating, and then I felt guilty for continuing to plough on. Well, the the idea that I've shamed you in some way suggests to me this has been a great lunch. And I think at that point, I'm going to say, Charlie Brooker, thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you. It's been grand. It has. Uh, Not all our conversation was exactly table-appropriate, but what else would you expect from someone who does dark so very well? And Chutney Mary is now open once again after the lockdown if you want to eat the food that Charlie and I ate, and I can heartily recommend it. Now, if you don't feel quite as sated as we were, please do explore the other Out to Lunch episodes. Oh, there's so much out there to satisfy you. And if you could stretch to a five-star review and tell everyone you know about us, well, we would be ever so pleased and we would love you forever in a very adult way. Out to Lunch is a something else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's actress and foodie Faye Ripley. Can I tell you my gym stories? I've only um, belonged to one gym and that was when I was courting my now husband and he's a bit younger than me and very <coughs> wonderful to look at and very fit and I yeah. wasn't any of those and 
I joined a gym and every morning you go, oh, it's amazing. You're, you know, you, you're going to the gym every day. That's really great. Um, but he then said, but you're not like, it's not really toning you at all. <laughs> and I, I had to admit that I'd only joined the gym so I could go and have a poo. 